Before we get into it, we'd like to preface that this episode contains details of assault, police brutality, and adult language. Listener discretion advised. I'm Sylvia Pohm. I'm John Ray Serapio. You're listening to At The Moment by AZ Media. Hello, everyone. Thank you all so much for tuning in for the very first episode of At The Moment. Hey, we're finally launching. Yes. I think for me, it's been almost six months since I first joined. It feels like it's been a really long time coming. We don't want this to be just a podcast, but have it become a space where we can have deeper, more analytical, often messy, and absolutely necessary conversations about Asian American politics through storytelling. For some context, Sel is actually my college bestie. <laughs> we've known each other for four years and we've always been super interested in Asian American news politics. Yeah, those 3 a.m. political rambles. They finally found a place. <laughs> exactly. And we're going to kick off this year by revisiting the original political intent of the Asian American identity. We'll be talking to an activist who works around that intent today and unpack a lot of the important conversations we had in 2020. Right. So let's backtrack a bit. 2020 has been kind of chaotic. From the pandemic, rise of anti-Asian hate crimes, to George Floyd and that Asian-American police officer who stood complicitly. In 2020, Asian-Americans are faced with a lot of racially charged moments. But one of the main takeaways I gathered from the year of quarantine is that Asian-Americans have a lot of reckoning to do. We sure do. We thought we'd take the Asian-American identity and fully put it into question. Rethink what this identity is and look at it more as a politics, a movement, or even a call to action. Exactly. And this may sound a little confusing at first, but the reason why we like to define Asian American as a political term instead of just an identity is that the history of how this term was first created has very deep ties to the fact that Asian American is actually an imagined identity. It's not quite real. This is starting to sound like a poli class, though. All right. Well, for example, when we look at Asian Americans, we often think of them as simply people who are descendants of Asia living in America. But Asia holds more than 58.8% of the world's population. Mm. So we're pretty much saying that more than half of the world has enough similarities for their descendants to be reduced down to one simple racial category. For example, Silanized families do not speak the same language, eat the same food, practice the same religion, and we're not even from the same landmass. I am Filipino-American and Southeast Asian proudly, and Sil is from Taiwan. And more accurately, born in Taiwan and now considered myself as Asian-American, among many of my other identities. So if we continue to use Asian continent to define Asian-American, then the descendants of people from Lebanon, Turkey, and parts of Russia are also considered Asian-American. This may not be what you think when you hear Asian-American. So I think all this is to show that this term is an imagined identity. It evolves and molds and shifts according to the invention of a society. Right. So, Sil, if this whole identity is BS... Why are we making this pod? Yeah, so Asian American political identity actually does have a much more precise origin. Beginning in 1965 San Francisco, some racist college administrators and professors caused a historical moment of protest. 
If you went to San Francisco State College in the late 1960s, less than 25% of the students would be people of color. And that's not really a surprise for the 60s, except for the fact that over 50% of SF's youth were people of color. Right. And in the 60s, San Francisco was pretty heavily segregated, which reflected in the school system. This probably accounted for why there are more white students that were attending the university over people of color that were attending. And on top of that, the history courses at the university didn't truly reflect the lived experience of POC students. In terms of Asian American course offerings, Mandarin Chinese classes were the only courses offered at the time. (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine my little Filipino self going to these Mandarin Chinese classes to learn Mandarin and find belonging. (laughs) (laughs) Studying our own history was important to understand who we were in this country, not just where we came from, whether it was China, the Philippines, or Japan. So the Black Student Union then pushed the administration to create an Institute of Black Studies. This institute would live within the university, where Black professors would teach and engage students in the first ever institutionalized classes on Black history and politics. But instead of the institute, the admin just gave them some classes and two non-tenured professors. And non-tenure basically means that these professors are in temporary, contracted positions that are often underpaid. So their future in the college is basically up to the same administration that refused to give the Black students what they wanted. The Black Student Union knew that these temporary measures could be taken away at any time. So they started recruiting other students of color to form a coalition called the Third World Liberation Front. Join with other people of color in the Third World Liberation Front. Together, they issued a set of demands. They demanded the power to change the class and racist nature of education. The Third World Liberation Front had 15 demands, and they refused to end the strike unless they were met. The education that their world people need is one that sees the dignity and the worth and the pride of the people from which they come. Now, the third world can kind of come off as a bit of a derogatory term, but they name themselves this for a very specific reason. Uh, racism is continuing as a mainstay of keeping third world people poor, not just in this country, but around the world. So originally, the term was created by Western and European countries to describe countries with lesser resources as, you know, third-class countries, developing countries, the third world. However, people who lived in these countries decided to subvert the term and make it a unifier of the don't-haves of this world to really make the claim that this inequality you see is not the result of inefficiencies or deficiencies of their countries, but instead the consequence of hundreds of years of colonial influence and the violence and the massacres that occurred. And by branding themselves with the term, it acts as a constant reminder to the world that the historical injustices still remain unresolved. Right, and when you apply that concept to the situation here in San Francisco, It kind of explains that the low admission rates of POCs to the university is not because POC students are inherently less intelligent than white students, but literally because of racism. Exactly. And 
Even with those shared struggles, the whole process of uniting the POC students was actually not very easy. Interestingly enough, when the Black students approached the intercollegiate Chinese for social action, these Chinese students were reluctant because they felt like they could not really relate to Black student struggles. But then the Black student union leadership pointed out to them that the institutional barriers that bar Chinese students and students of immigrants from entering the college are from the same racist system that kept Black students out of campus walls. The Black student union went in going all around San Francisco to talk and connect with students in youth of color to from the Third World Liberation Front. This included the Chicanex, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, and even the Native communities. And don't forget the anti-Vietnam War progressive white students. Mm, yep, our white allies. On November 6, 1968, the Third World Liberation Front went on strike. The strike continued for five long months. At its height, the campus was essentially closed down, with over 80% of the college not attending class and supporting the strike. The so-called silent majority was not very silent. It was out on strike. Prior to this time in history, Asian American didn't even exist. Most people in mainstream society called us Orientals, mm. which is a capture-all term that stems from the colonial history of white people literally not bothering differentiating the nuances of all countries east of Europe. Mm. Now, even though we're talking about the term as if it's past tense, I literally saw Oriental rugs for sale at Lord and Taylor the other day, and I low-key almost bought one. Oh my god, John Ray! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, meanwhile, most Asian people in the U.S. just identified with their ethnic identity. You know, Filipinos were Filipinos, Chinese people were Chinese, and so on. So this was really the moment when Asian American as a term was formalized, as a rallying call for liberation and justice. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that Filipino Americans didn't even see any side of the East Asians that they were protesting with. They saw that their struggles aligned better with the Latinx community, which honestly makes a lot of sense to me as a Filipino, because like, one, I am definitely browner than most East Asians, and two... Our culture and traditions have closer ties to the Latinx community anyways because of shared histories of colonization. I like how you put that, John Ray. And I think the point for us as Asian Americans is that historically, we haven't related to one another through identity, but instead by politics. Mm. And really, we don't need to share a common identity or experience to be effective. And we should also probably stop looking for that as a justification for us to take action for racial justice. This was all a bit of a political strategy, how this term has started. Yeah, that's right. So knowing what we know now about how the term Asian American began, what does it mean for us now? We'll get into it after this break. Hi, I'm Cynthia. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm one of the co-founders of AZ Media. Two years ago, I started working on a documentary series on Asian Americans in the Midwest. And while doing the research, I realized how underreported this experience is within the Asian American narrative as a whole. That project led me to dig into more undercovered stories within this identity. If this is the kind of work you want to support, subscribe to At The Moments, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or recommend us to a friend or family member. Thanks.
Knowing what we know of its origin, is it term enough? Is it not enough? What are its constraints now? And how has it served or not served Asian Americans? And to begin to answer these questions, we brought on Hmong American organizer and activist, Kajua Va. Kajua Va, a co-executive director of Freedom Inc. Freedom Inc. is a Black and Southeast Asian nonprofit organization based in Madison, Wisconsin, that works with low to no income communities of color. Being a Southeast Asian refugee, the Asian American identity for Kajua is more political than it is cultural. As a Hmong person who was born in Laos, lived about six years in the refugee camp and then was resettled here, I never really considered myself Asian American. I actually considered myself more Hmong. But that's not to say that I don't align myself with Asian American politics and movements. I think that it's correct to align ourselves politically as Asian Americans, but we need to further define Asian America. On defining what Asian American is, Kajua had some points that I, as a Southeast Asian, was like, yes. And so I think that uh, two things I want people to think about when they think about the term Asian American, that we're not monolithic, number one. Number two, that we have different narratives in history and that we really should be looking at our demographics and our data and how oppression continues to impact our communities, specifically around Southeast Asians and our resettlement, our failed resettlement in this country. And the fact that if you look at statistics and data, that we are actually Cambodian, Vietnamese, uh, Hmong and Lao folks and other ethnic groups that came because of the American war in Southeast Asia. I feel as a Southeast Asian person, it's important that the Southeast Asian narrative and experience in this country, because it's fairly new and because that put our families into the pipeline of incarceration and then deportation. That's just one of the examples of how we are different. People must see Southeast Asian experiences and get the Southeast Asian experience, not only in terms of where resources should be diverted to, but also um, without looking in depth into what's happening. And Kajua herself is a Hmong refugee. Hmong people are a Southeast Asian nomadic farming community who live across several countries, including China, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. And Hmong people were really left out of our history books. Mm -hmm. In typical fashion, the war that eventually brought many Hmong people over to the U.S. was called, get this, the Secret War. So secretive that I didn't even learn about Hmong people until college when I went out of my way to learn about it. The Secret War was a proxy war fought in Laos between the CIA and Communist forces during the Vietnam War. Hmong people were recruited by the CIA to fight against Vietnamese and Lao Communist insurgents. But when the Communists won and took over Laos in 1975, the U.S. immediately cut off aid and left their Hmong recruits stranded in an enemy country. To escape persecution from the Lao government, Many Hmong stayed in refugee camps in Thailand and Vietnam before finally escaping to the U.S. as refugees and settling mostly in California, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. I came to this country as a refugee kid and was resettled in the Midwest. And so I think growing up, uh, not really seeing anything that fit my need or fit the communities that I wanted to grow up in, there wasn't a lot of opportunities. In addition to that, growing up in a very traditional Hmong household, think that I learned about gender inequities fairly early on. And that's not to say that other communities don't have their own share of gender inequalities. It's just 
that was my lived experience. And um, as a Hmong daughter, Hmong girl growing up, we grew up pretty poor and not being able to get a lot of opportunities to leave the neighborhood. I really wasn't sure, other than the university that was a couple blocks away from my home, uh, what was truly out there. I got an opportunity to go study abroad in Thailand. And when I came back, I realized how big the world was. And I wonder for the kids who grew up like me, if they could see outside of our neighborhood, what that would do for them, because it did so much for me. That lived experience eventually became a realization for Kajua, that she was being marginalized in her new community. But it was a trip to Thailand where she gained a deeper understanding of her Hmong identity. You know, prior to going to Thailand, I understood racism in this country and discrimination in this country and identified probably as a person of color, but really didn't understand it, what it means to be a Hmong person in the world. And when I went to Thailand, it gave me a different perspective. And that perspective was no matter where I went as a Hmong person, I was a minority. I was a minority in Thailand and I was a minority in the U.S. I was in Chiang Mai and I saw that many of the stores were selling Hmong products, but Hmong people could not sell or didn't have money to buy a storefront to sell. So they would sell on the streets. And so it really opened up my eyes to what capitalism really looks like and also how Hmong people live throughout the world. And so when I came back, I saw that a, a few of the young folks that I grew up with, they were still hanging out um, in the parking lot of our apartment complexes. And I thought if I could show them what I had seen and if I could show them and open up opportunities that were given to me, to them, like, would that change their lives? Would it impact them in the way that it impacted me? Would it impact them? That was a turning point for Kajua. And so basically this started a weekly group gathering every Tuesday or Thursday if they could come. And basically I would just teach them everything that I knew. And so after a year of just giving them some basic political education, it changed their whole outlook in life. Many of them didn't have a place to live. Many of them couldn't see beyond the next day. And it changed them. And, and I could see many of them had gone back to school. Many got their GED. Many wanted to do different things with their lives. And so I took that model and basically said, if I can change their lives, then let's change their brothers and sisters' lives. Let's keep doing this to see uh, what it can do for our community. And so that was the beginning of Freedom Inc. Her work began in 2000. 26-year-old Kajua Va saw the need for a safe space in Madison, Wisconsin for young Hmong women to talk about the challenges they faced. She created the Asian Freedom Project and mobilized Southeast Asian teens in her neighborhood around issue of racial profiling, welfare reform, and gender justice. And in 2003, Asian Freedom Project became Freedom Inc. and expanded their work to include Black and Southeast Asian youth, women, gender non-conforming, and LGBTQ individuals. Kajwa's work was so incredible that she was recognized as a champion of change at the White House during Domestic Violence Awareness Month in 2011. She was even named one of 20 women of color in politics to watch in 2020. What a badass. Being an organization that works at the intersection of Black, Asian Hmong American, and LGBTQ plus communities, 
Freedom Inc. found itself leading a lot of the important conversations about race in the summer of 2020. Good evening, everyone. We're coming on the air with the latest on the wave of protests and uh, unrest taking place at this hour across the country. Outrage at the death of George Floyd, an African-American man while in police custody in Minneapolis, nearly a week ago. On May 25th, 2020, a convenience store employee called 911 and told the police that the 46-year-old Black American man, George Floyd, had bought cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. Within 17 minutes of the first police car showing up at the scene, Floyd was dead. There were four officers at the scene, and one of them was Hmong American. Tutal turned away from Derek Chauvin, kneeling on Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. Nine minutes. And those nine minutes of complicity in Floyd's murder sparked national conversation among the Asian American community, and specifically the Hmong American community. Um, I'm not here today because we keep us safe. And as an Asian American woman, I feel like it's very important that when we say we keep us safe, the we that we're talking about are other people of color. In Asian America, the reactions were mixed to say the least. Many non-Hmong Asians tried to disassociate Hmong Americans from Asian Americans, while others were claiming Hmong as Asian Americans for the first time. And some were just learning that Hmong people existed, period. But for Hmong Americans, it was also pretty mixed. When Hmong refugees arrived in the U.S., many were sent to live in black and brown communities, which were often underfunded, low income, and heavily policed. For Hmong Americans, this meant there were, and there still are, shared lived and historical experiences there. But it also meant that people of color who lived in these communities were often pitted against one another for the limited resources. And over the years, it's fed into this anti-Black, stereotypical narrative that many Hmong Americans hold that Black people deliberately targeted them. Asian American politics is messy, y'all. Super messy. <laughs> and Kajua saw all this unfold and wanted to confront it head on. Yeah, so Kajua, I think you touched on an important point on how delicate Asian American solidarity is. How do we have this collective term without erasing the unique historical injustices that people in the Hmong communities have faced, while other more prosperous Asians have not. We need to look at how the segregated data means the fight is different for others, even though we are technically all Asian American. And because of the difference in history, our relationships with the Black community look different as well. So on May 25th, 2020, where were you at the time? What was Freedom Inc. working on and how did you react? When George Floyd was murdered, we were in Freedom Inc. and we were preparing to address the anti-Asian hate. The two things that intersected was while in the midst of trying to address anti-Asian hate against our own communities, we then were forced to look at the killing of George Floyd mm -hmm. and our historical stance, if you want to call it that, of Asian Americans and Tu Tao was such a painful example of how Asian Americans have shown up for Black lives. And that we think that just because we weren't the one with our knee on his neck and that we were silent bystanders and we didn't actively participate in the violence against Black people, that therefore Tu Tao should not be prosecuted, should not be arrested. And in fact, he was just part of the circumstance. That was a, a great moment for us as Asian Americans to say, what side of history are we going to be on? Mm -hmm. Do we continuously say we were not part of the problem because we did not have our knee on his neck? 
Or do we say we have been complicit to white supremacy and have contributed to the anti-blackness and the harm of black people in this country by looking away and by standing by silently? No, yeah, I think that's so true. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people end up doing this like either or conversation where it's like, oh, if you focus on Black Lives Matter, you're like ignoring all the hate crimes happening to Asian Americans. But I think like what you're saying is like, it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, you should look at it together because the same hate that allows, you know, all people who vaguely looked East Asian or or whatever to be categorized as one ethnic group as Chinese, it's the same racism that, you know, profiles Black people and is all interconnected. And the violence is like created in this web, the system of just violence. But yeah, I kind of want to ask, did you talk to your family members, your community members about all these things? And what was the reaction on the ground when you did have these conversations with your community? The killing of George Floyd isn't the first time Asian Americans or America has witnessed the killing of Black people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that my work in building a solidarity amongst Black and Southeast Asian folks go way back. That I think it even goes back to the time where we came as kids and were resettled in these heavily populated Black communities where uh, my mother and then would trade vegetables and cucumbers for Black grandmothers to teach us how to make snacks and meals while they were away from for work. And so at Freedom Inc., when George Floyd was murdered, we had come together and were ready to participate mm. in the liberation uh, movement. We were, as Southeast Asian, willing to put our bodies on the line. We knew that it had to be more than performative actions, that we actually had to take action. And so I say that to say, I've been working with my own mother, who is 77 years old, always correcting her or making sure that she received the right political education. We do that not only with my mother, but we have elders groups at Freedom Inc., Cambodian, Hmong, and we're always doing anti-Blackness conversations, dismantling anti-Blackness, you know, dismantling patriarchy. So it's an ongoing conversation. Thank you for the work that you do. And I think it's really inspiring for all of us to continue to have these conversations with our families, even if it gets really tough and we feel like we're hitting the wall sometimes. Because I think this summer really taught us that racism is really ingrained in every aspect of our lives. And if we do have the power, we have to do something to make change happen. Kajwa, I guess from your experience as someone who's been doing this for a long time, what is Beyond Solidarity? What is a true, genuine coalition and what does it look like? I can tell you, you need to go beyond family. <laughs> you need to go beyond uh, allyship. So my biggest lesson and for young Asian American folks or for Asian American folks listening is black people don't need us to save them. Mm. They've been saving themselves and been saving everybody for a long time. And so we have benefited from their struggle in this country for so long. And so this time around, this was the pivotal moment for me. We were marching back to the Capitol in Madison and around the corner, uh, you know, I was on security team and someone, some white allies came up and said, hey, there's a white man with, he's heavily armed. He's got a long weapon and it looks like he's carrying another pistol. And then I'm like, oh my God, you know, let's ask the police to help. And I mean, as an abolitionist organization, we already know that the police don't really care. But I was in my headset, like as an Asian person, I was still thinking the police are supposed to help you. But 
in reality and in analysis, I'm like, they don't help you because they don't help black people either. So long story short, the police didn't do anything. And in my head, I was thinking, if we get shot, will the volunteers who've helped to come and manage this rally, then blame like Freedom Inc. or blame me or blame who? And then I thought to myself, like, they actually need to know that as Asian Americans, you're out here because your liberation is tied to black liberation. Putting your body on the line also means that there has to be a fight in it for you. Because at the end of the day, if you're volunteering and you get shot, you're going to be really upset. You're coming because you fully understand that your liberation is tied to black liberation. Number one. Number two, what's the fight for you? What is the injustice for you that you're feeling? What is, the, what is your fight? And tying that so that when you're showing up, you're showing up for yourself too. That too really mattered. And so that's my biggest lesson this year. What's in this fight for you? If Black people wins the defund fight and campaign, do you know what that means for poor Asian American children all over the U.S.? It means more resources. It means more resources going to those who need medical assistance and medical care. It means more resources going into community gardens. That's how I started looking at this. It's like, it's our fight too. What is the relationship between Asian Americans and the Black Lives Matter uprising and the discontent that's coming out? I think a lot of times my conversations with some older people in my community is that they don't see that connection. And like, how have you been, I guess, having conversations with them about it? I think that there's so much work to be done. I almost feel like it's easier to talk to Hmong elders once they understood oppression because they know their lived history of being refugees and, you know, moving from country to country and being oppressed. It was a lot easier for them to say, do you now understand why people burnt Target down? Do you now understand why people are saying, fuck the glass down State Street, you know, Black lives are dying? Because they look at that and they say, yeah, when we were occupied by the French and they were taxing us without representation, like we, we had uprisings and Hmong people burnt down properties. And so they understood that. But it's the younger people who don't have a narrative to go back to, to understand that it makes it easy for them to say, but why did they do that to Target? Target didn't do nothing to them. You know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you're like, what are you talking about? Bricks don't cry. George Floyd cried for his ancestors, cried for his mama in front of the world. Why are you still talking about the bricks and motor? I found that point to be so compelling. Like, because the older Hmong American generation had that lived experience of being oppressed and of fighting against injustice in their motherlands, it's actually easier for them to understand why Black activists threw bricks at, well, brick and mortar stores like Target. Mm, yeah, I agree. And it's like the millennials, the more privileged Asian and non-Black communities that are crying for Target. But when you ask, what did Target do to deserve this looting? You should really be asking, what systems and government oppression and oversight really brought on these uprisings? When the government fails in a democratic society, an uprising is a way to communicate that. 
Our parents might have participated in similar uprisings in their home countries because their own governments were oppressive. And so the protests in 2020 where black and brown folks are fighting for rights and racial equality in the US, it's basically the same sentiment. It's another way to fight for liberation. I think one of the things maybe to inspire the younger generation to really think about Asian American as a political identity is not to forget that the histories and stories of queer Asian Americans who paved the way for us. For example, Helen Zia, she really brought to light the injustice that Vincent Chin went through for the younger Asian American generation to really think about what gender justice looks like outside of just the lens of racial justice and the Asian American narrative. And so these are things that I think have been really helpful for me to be inclusive of all of the different injustices that are out there. And so as somebody who is Southeast Asian, Hmong, a woman, someone who has dedicated her whole life to ending gender inequities and gender-based violence, I think that we need to move forward in thinking about Asian American as a political identity, but through the lens of those who are most impacted in our communities. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Nevada. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the community engagement director at AZ Media. In college, my research and academic interests have been at the intersection of climate justice and intersectionality studies. Through these experiences, I realized how important it is to center the voices of people that have historically been kept out of the mainstream. This is what we're striving to do at AZ. If you want to support our mission and stay in the loop, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at azmedia, that's azi.media, and join our mailing list at azi.media forward slash newsletter to stay updated with upcoming AZ projects. Thanks for your support. Talking with Kajwa for me really emphasized the fact that Asian American as an identity is political. And as more of us young people group ourselves under this identity, it's very important for us to not forget why the term exists anyways and why this umbrella identity matters. So going way back to the San Francisco events and the history of what happened there, it showed us that there is power in organizing what are innately different groups of communities under the Asian American identity. It's the whole logic of strength in numbers, right? Right. And I think really what we want to double down and do with this podcast is figure out if we could harness the power of the original intent around Asian American as a term. If we think about the original 15 demands of the Third World Liberation Front way back in 1968, which we've linked in our show notes, by the way, they were actually demanding real autonomy and control over the institution. So not just what they can learn, but also literally a seat in demanding admissions and financial aid. The protests went on for five whole months and the classroom attendance dropped by more than 50%, which was super impactful. However, even though they were able to cause this much of a stir, the results were actually quite disappointing. They got the first ethnic studies college, sure, but not the autonomy and control over admissions and financial aid. What this means is that the school used representation to try to fix a problem of injustice. 
It wasn't all about the classes. It was actually about the historical exclusion of POC folks leading to the economic and social inequality we see today. The results of this five-month-long protest was a compromise, and quite a dangerous one. Yeah, and I think a consequence of that is when we're not remembering that the identity started as a political movement, we really only think about Asian American as a matter representation. So our minds go toward things like AAPI Arts and Asian American History Month and even Kamala Harris. But really all of that is not what those protesters asked for because it just says that representation was all they needed. But nah, the original intent of the demand was a true desire for justice, equity, and change. And all of that is gone because they got representation. And now more than ever, I think we really need to refer back to the original intent, like you mentioned, John Ray. Looking for ways to achieve justice and getting our power back and creating a society where people's freedoms and their autonomies aren't left unaddressed just because they got quote-unquote representation. And all of this is probably why it requires us to take out this old political movement out of the closet, dust off the rust, and get it churning again. Yeah, this is a horrible analogy. (laughs) No, girl, I get it. (laughs) Okay, so pretty much what I'm saying is, I think this is what we'll be trying to do with this pod. Using news to reevaluate what are the tactics, strategies, and goals behind renewing this new political movement. And how can we make it make sense right now? Agreed. Okay, but I want us to end our first ever podcast episode on a reflection of how the year in 1987 ended. So after those five months of protest, in an effort to appease the claim for more diversity, the white president of the San Francisco State College at the time was actually replaced by a Japanese-American man named Samuel Hayakawa. Hayakawa was basically your typical mono-minority figure He cracked down violently on all the protesters, threatened them with a bunch of shit, and argued that Asian American protesters had no stake in the strikes because he believed this to be a Black issue. But the Asian American protesters stayed unfazed. They fought back and say, no, we still stand with the Black community, the Chicanx and Latinx and Native American community as people who were collectively, systematically oppressed by racism and thus fortified an interracial solidarity. Yeah, and I just want to note that Hayakawa was actually sponsored by none other than... Ronald Ronald Reagan. Reagan. Ugh, Ronald fucking Reagan. But what we want to say is, don't be a Samuel Hayakawa. And don't settle for Asian American representation. Dig a little deeper with us on ATM for the rest of the season. To continue this discussion, join us next week for an episode on the impacts of COVID-19 on Asian Americans. And that's a wrap. You can read our source materials, stay updated on the story, or email us at az.media. That's azi.media. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at azmedia. If you liked today's episode, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. It's the best way to show your support and get it out to more listeners. This episode was produced by Stacey Wong and edited by Cynthia Leo. Story research and reporting by Lena Panic and Nevada Tenetti. Our theme music is by Satoru Ono, cover art by Suzu Schwaber, and special thanks to Alice Liu, Tiffany Huang, Franco Bonsal, and Eamon Tan. I'm John Ray Serapio. And I'm Sylvia Pohl. Thank y'all for listening. See you next Tuesday for part two.